Chapter Five, Part Three of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Read by Tig Hines. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What birds were they? He stood on the steps of the library to look at them, leaning wearily on his ash plant. They flew round and round the jutting shoulder of a house in Molesworth Street. The air of the late March evening made clear their flight, their dark quivering bodies flying clearly against the sky, as against a limp-hung cloth of smoky tenuous blue. He watched their flight, bird after bird, a dark flash, a swerve, a flutter of wings. He tried to count them before all their darting quivering bodies passed, six, ten, eleven, and wondered were they odd or even in number. Twelve, thirteen, for two more came wheeling down from the upper sky. They were flying high and low, but ever round and round in straight and curving lines and ever flying from left to right, circling about a temple of air. He listened to the cries, like the squeak of mice behind the wainscot, a shrill twofold note. But the notes were long and shrill and whirring, unlike the cry of vermin, falling a third or a fourth, and trilled as the flying beaks clove the air. Their cry was shrill and clear and fine and falling, like threads of silken light unwound from whirring spools. The inhuman clamour soothed his ears, in which his mother's sobs and reproaches murmured insistently, and the dark, frail, quivering bodies, wheeling and fluttering and swerving round an airy temple of the tenuous sky, soothed his eyes which still saw the image of his mother's face. Why was he gazing upwards from the steps of the porch? hearing their shrill twofold cry, watching their flight, for an augury of good or evil. A phrase of Cornelius Agrippa flew through his mind, and then there flew hither and thither shapeless thoughts from Swedenborg on the correspondence of birds to things of the intellect, and of how the creatures of the air have their knowledge and know their times and seasons, because they, unlike man, are in the order of their life, and have not perverted that order by reason. And for ages men had gazed upward as he was gazing at birds in flight. The colonnade above him made him think vaguely of an ancient temple, and the ash-plant on which he leaned wearily of the curved stick of an auger. A sense of fear of the unknown moved in the heart of his weariness, a fear of symbols and portents, of the hawk-like man whose name he bore, soaring out of his captivity on osier-woven wings, of Thoth, the god of writers writing with a reed upon a tablet, and bearing on his narrow ibis head the cusped moon. He smiled as he thought of the god's image, for it made him think of a bottle-nosed judge in a wig, putting commas into a document which he held at arm's length, and he knew that he would not have remembered the god's name, but that it was like an Irish oath. It was folly. But was it for this folly that he was about to leave forever the house of prayer and prudence into which he had been born? and the order of life out of which he had come. They came back with shrill cries over the jutting shoulder of the house, flying darkly against the fading air. What birds were they? He thought that they must be swallows who had come back from the south. Then he was to go away, for they were birds ever going and coming, building ever an unlasting home under the eaves of men's houses, and ever leaving the homes they had built to wander. Bend down your faces, Una and Aleel. I gaze upon them as the swallow gazes upon the nest under the eave before he wander the loud waters. A soft liquid joy like the noise of many waters flowed over his memory, 
and he felt in his heart the soft peace of silent spaces of fading tenuous sky above the waters, of oceanic silence, of swallows flying through the sea-dusk over the flowing waters. A soft liquid joy flowed through the words where the soft long vowels hurtled noiselessly and fell away, lapping and flowing back and ever shaking the white bells of their waves in mute chime and mute peal and soft low swooning cry, and he felt that the augury he had sought in the wheeling darting birds and in the pale space of sky above him had come forth from his heart like a bird from a turret, quietly and swiftly. Symbol of departure or of loneliness. The verses crooned in the ear of his memory composed slowly before his remembering eyes the scene of the hall on the night of the opening of the National Theatre. He was alone at the side of the balcony, looking out of jaded eyes at the culture of Dublin in the stalls and at the tawdry scene-cloths and human dolls framed by the garish lamps of the stage. A burly policeman sweated behind him and seemed at every moment about to act. The catcalls and hisses and mocking cries ran in rude gusts round the hall from his scattered fellow-students. A libel on Ireland! Made in Germany! Blasphemy! We never sold our faith. No Irish woman ever did it. We want no amateur atheists. We want no budden Buddhists. A sudden swift hiss fell from the windows above him, and he knew that the electric lamps had been switched on in the reader's room. He turned into the pillared hall, now calmly lit, went up the staircase and passed in through the clicking turnstile. Cranley was sitting over near the dictionaries. A thick book, opened at the frontispiece, lay before him on the wooden rest. He leaned back in his chair, inclining his ear like that of a confessor to the face of the medical student who was reading to him a problem from the chess page of a journal. Stephen sat down at his right and the priest at the other side of the table closed his copy of the tablet with an angry snap and stood up. Cranley gazed after him blandly and vaguely. The medical student went on in a softer voice. Pawn to King's Fourth. We had better go, Dixon, said Stephen in warning. He has gone to complain. Dixon folded the journal and rose with dignity, saying, Our men retired in good order. With guns and cattle, added Stephen, pointing to the title-page of Cranley's book, on which was printed Diseases of the Ox. As they passed through a lane of the table, Stephen said, Cranley, I want to speak to you. Cranley did not answer or turn. He laid his book on the counter and passed out, his well-shod feet sounding flatly on the floor. On the staircase he paused, and gazing absently at Dixon, repeated, Pawn to King's bloody fourth. Put it that way if you like, Dixon said. He had a quiet, toneless voice and urbane manners, and on a finger of his plump, clean hand he displayed at moments a signet ring. As they crossed the hall, a man of dwarfish stature came towards them. Under the dome of his tiny hat, his unshaven face began to smile with pleasure, and he was heard to murmur. The eyes were melancholy as those of a monkey. "'Good evening, gentlemen,' said the stubble-grown, monkeyish face. "'Warm weather for March.' said Cranley. They have the windows open upstairs. Dixon smiled and turned his ring. The blackish monkey-puckered face pursed its human mouth with gentle pleasure, and its voice purred, Delightful weather for March, simply delightful. There are two nice young ladies upstairs, Captain, tired of waiting, Dixon said. Cranley smiled and said kindly, 
The captain has only one love, Sir Walter Scott. Isn't that so, captain? What are you reading now, captain? Dixon asked. The Bride of Lammermoor. I love old Scott, the flexible lips said. I think he writes something lovely. There is no writer can touch Sir Walter Scott. He moved a thin, shrunken brown hand gently in the air in time to his praise, and his thin, quick eyelids beat often over his sad eyes. Sadder to Stephen's ear was his speech, a genteel accent, low and moist, marred by errors, and listening to it he wondered was the story true, and was the thin blood that flowed in his shrunken frame noble and come of an incestuous love. The park trees were heavy with rain, and rain fell still and ever in the lake, lying grey like a shield. A game of swans flew there, and the water and the shore beneath were fouled with their green-white slime. They embraced softly, impelled by the grey rainy light, the wet silent trees, the shield-like witnessing lake, the swans. They embraced without joy or passion, his arm about his sister's neck. A grey woollen cloak was wrapped athwart her from her shoulder to her waist, and her fair head was bent in willing shame. He had loose red-brown hair, and tender, shapely, strong, freckled hands. Face? There was no face seen. The brother's face was bent upon her fair, rain-fragrant hair. The hand, freckled and strong and shapely and caressing, was Davin's hand. He frowned angrily upon his thought, and on the shriveled mannequin who had called it forth. His father's jibes at the Bantry gang leaped out of his memory. He held them at a distance and brooded uneasily on his own thought again. Why were they not Cranley's hands? Had Davin's simplicity and innocence stung him more secretly? He walked on across the hall with Dixon, leaving Cranley to take leave elaborately of the dwarf. Under the colonnade, Temple was standing in the midst of a little group of students. One of them cried, Dixon, come over to you here. Temple is in grand form. Temple turned on him his dark, gypsy eyes. You're a hypocrite, O'Keefe, he said. And Dixon is a smiler. By hell, I think that's a good literary expression. He laughed slyly, looking in Stephen's face, repeating, By hell, I'm delighted with that name. A smiler. A stout student who stood below them on the step said, Come back to the mistress, Temple. We want to hear about that. He had, faith, Temple said. And he was a married man too, and all the priests used to be dining there. By hell, I think they all had a touch. We shall call it riding the hack to spare the hunter, said Dixon. Tell us, Temple, O'Keefe said, how many quarts of porter have you in you? All your intellectual soul is in that phrase, O'Keefe, said Temple with open scorn. He moved with a shambling gait round the group and spoke to Stephen. Did you know that the Fosters are the kings of Belgium? he asked. Cranley came out through the door of the entrance hall, his hat thrust back on the nape of his neck and picking his teeth with care. "'And here's the wiseacre,' said Temple. "'Do you know that about the Forsters?' He paused for an answer. Cranley dislodged a fig seed from his teeth on the point of his rude toothpick and gazed at it intently. "'The Forster family,' Temple said, "'is descended from Baldwin I, King of Flanders. He was called the Forester.' Forrester and Forster are the same name. A descendant of Baldwin I, Captain Francis Forster, settled in Ireland and married the daughter of the last chieftain of Clanbrazil. Then there are the Blake Forsters. That's a different branch. From Baldhead, King of Flanders, Cranley repeated, rooting again deliberately at his gleaming, uncovered teeth. 
Where did you pick up all that history? O'Keefe asked. I know all the history of your family too, Temple said, turning to Stephen. Do you know what Geraldus Cambrensis says about your family? Is he descended from Baldwin too? asked a tall consumptive student with dark eyes. Baldhead, Cranley repeated, sucking at a crevice in his teeth. Pernoblis et pervetusta familia, Temple said to Stephen. The stout student who stood below them on the steps farted briefly. Dixon turned towards him, saying in a soft voice, Did an angel speak? Cranley turned also and said vehemently, but without anger, Goggins, you're the flamingest dirty devil I ever met, do you know? I had it on my mind to say that, Goggin answered firmly. It did no one any harm, did it? We hope, Dixon said suavely, that it was not of the kind known to science as Paulo Post Futurum. Didn't I tell you he was a smiler? said Temple, turning right and left. Didn't I give him that name? You did. We're not deaf, said the tall consumptive. Cranley still frowned at the stout student below him. Then, with a snort of disgust, he shoved him violently down the steps. Go away from here, he said rudely. Go away, you stinkpot. And you are a stinkpot. Goggins skipped down onto the gravel and at once returned to his place with good humour. Temple turned back to Stephen and asked, Do you believe in the law of heredity? Are you drunk or what are you? Or what are you trying to say? asked Cranley, turning round on him with an expression of wonder. The most profound sentence ever written, Temple said with enthusiasm, is the sentence at the end of the zoology. Reproduction is the beginning of death. He touched Stephen timidly at the elbow and said eagerly, Do you feel how profound that is because you were a poet? Cranley pointed his long forefinger. Look at him, he said with scorn to the others. Look at Ireland's hope. They laughed at his words and gesture. Temple turned on him bravely, saying, Cranley, you're always sneering at me. I can see that. But I'm as good as you any day. Do you know what I think about you now as compared with myself? My dear man, Cranley said urbanely, you are incapable, do you know, absolutely incapable of thinking. But you know, Temple went on, why I think of you and of myself compared together. Out of the temple, the stout student cried from the steps. Get it out in bits. Temple turned right and left, making sudden feeble gestures as he spoke. I'm a bollocks, he said, shaking his head in despair. I am, and I know I am, and I admit it that I am. Dixon patted him lightly on the shoulder and said mildly, And it does you every credit, Temple. But he, Temple said, pointing to Cranley, he is a bollocks too, like me, only he doesn't know it, and that's the only difference I see. A burst of laughter covered his words, but he turned again to Stephen and said with a sudden eagerness, That word is a most interesting word. That's the only English dual number. Did you know? Is it? Stephen said vaguely. He was watching Cranley's firm-featured, suffering face, lit up now by a smile of false patience. The gross name had passed over it, like foul water poured over an old stone image, patient of injuries. And as he watched him, he saw him raise his hat in salute and uncover the black hair that stood stiffly from his forehead like an iron crown. She passed out from the porch of the library and bowed across to Stephen in reply to Cranley's greeting. He also. Was there not a slight flush on Cranley's cheek, or had it come forth at Temple's words? The light had waned. He could not see. Did that explain his friend's listless silence, his harsh comments? 
the sudden intrusions of rude speech with which he had shattered so often Stephen's ardent wayward confessions. Stephen had forgiven freely, for he had found this rudeness also in himself, and he remembered an evening when he had dismounted from a borrowed creaking bicycle to pray to God in a wood near Malahide. He had lifted up his arms and spoken in ecstasy to the sombre nave of the trees, knowing that he stood on holy ground and in a holy hour, and when two constabulary men had come into sight round a bend in the gloomy road, he had broken off his prayer to whistle loudly an air from the last pantomime. He began to beat the frayed end of his ash-plant against the base of a pillar. Had Cranley not heard him? Yet he could wait. The talk about him ceased for a moment and a soft hiss fell again from a window above. But no other sound was in the air, and the swallows whose flight he had followed with idle eyes were sleeping. She had passed through the dusk, and therefore the air was silent save for one soft hiss that fell, and therefore the tongues about him had ceased their babble. Darkness was falling. Darkness falls from the air. A trembling joy, lambent as a faint light, played like a fairy host around him. But why? Her passage through the darkening air, or the verse with its black vowels and its opening sound, rich and lute-like? He walked away slowly towards the deeper shadows at the end of the colonnade, beating the stone softly with his stick to hide his reverie from the students whom he had left and allowed his mind to summon back to itself the age of Dowland and Bird and Nash. Eyes opening from the darkness of desire, eyes that dim the breaking east, what was their languid grace but the softness of chambering? And what was their shimmer but the shimmer of the scum that mantled the cesspool of the court of a slobbering steward? And he tasted in the language of memory ambered wines, dying fallings of sweet airs, the proud pavan, and saw with the eyes of memory kind gentlewomen in Covent Garden, wooing from their balconies with sucking mouths, and the pox-fouled wenches of the taverns and young wives that gaily yielding to their ravishers clipped and clipped again. The images he had summoned gave him no pleasure. They were secret and inflaming, but her image was not entangled by them. That was not the way to think of her. It was not even the way in which he thought of her. Could his mind, then, not trust itself? Old phrases, sweet only with a disinterred sweetness like the fig-seeds Cranley rooted out of his gleaming teeth. It was not thought nor vision, though he knew vaguely that her figure was passing homeward through the city. Vaguely first, and then more sharply, he smelt her body. A conscious unrest seethed in his blood. Yes, it was her body he smelt, a wild and languid smell the tepid limbs over which his music had flowed desirously, and the secret soft linen upon which her flesh distilled odour and a dew. A louse crawled over the nape of his neck, and putting his thumb and forefinger deftly beneath his loose collar, he caught it. He rolled its body, tender yet brittle as a grain of rice, between thumb and finger for an instant, before he let it fall from him and wondered would it live or die. There came to his mind a curious phrase from Cornelius a Lapide, which said that the lice born of human sweat were not created by God with the other animals on the sixth day. But the tickling of the skin of his neck made his mind raw and red. The life of his body, ill-clad, ill-fed, louse-eaten, made him close his eyelids in a sudden spasm of despair, and in the darkness he saw the brittle bright bodies of lice falling from the air 
and turning often as they fell. Yes, and it was not darkness that fell from the air. It was brightness. Brightness falls from the air. He had not even remembered rightly Nash's line. All the images it had awakened were false. His mind bred vermin. His thoughts were lice born of the sweat of sloth. He came back quickly along the colonnade towards the group of students. Well then, let her go and be damned to her. She could love some clean athlete who washed himself every morning to the waist and had black hair on his chest. Let her. Cranley had taken another dried fig from the supply in his pocket and was eating it slowly and noisily. Temple sat on the pediment of a pillar, leaning back, his cap pulled down on his sleepy eyes. A squat young man came out of the porch, a leather portfolio tucked under his armpit. He marched towards the group, striking the flags with the heels of his boots and with the ferrule of his heavy umbrella. Then, raising the umbrella in salute, he said to all, "'Good evening, sirs.' He struck the flags again and tittered while his head trembled with a slight nervous movement. The tall consumptive student and Dixon and O'Keefe were speaking in Irish and did not answer him. Then, turning to Cranley, he said, Good evening, particularly to you. He moved the umbrella in indication and tittered again. Cranley, who was still chewing the fig, answered with loud movements of his jaws. Good. Yes, it is a good evening. The squat student looked at him seriously and shook his umbrella gently and reprovingly. I can see, he said, that you are about to make obvious remarks. Ah, oh, Cranley answered, holding out what remained of the half-chewed fig and jerking it towards the squat student's mouth in sign that he should eat. The squat student did not eat it, but indulging his special humour said gravely, still tittering and prodding his phrase with his umbrella, Do you intend that? He broke off, pointed bluntly to the munched pulp of the fig and said loudly, I allude to that. Oh, Cranley said as before. Do you intend that now? the squat student said, as ipso facto, or, let us say, as so to speak. Dixon turned aside from his group, saying, Goggins was waiting for you, Glynn. He has gone round to the Adelphi to look for you and Moynihan. What have you there? he asked, tapping the portfolio under Glynn's arm. Examination papers, Glynn answered. I give them monthly examinations to see that they are profiting by my tuition. He also tapped the portfolio and coughed gently and smiled. Tuition, said Cranley rudely. I suppose you mean the barefooted children that are taught by a bloody ape like you. God help them. He bit off the rest of the fig and flung away the butt. I suffer little children to come unto me, Glynn said amiably. A bloody ape, Cranley repeated with emphasis, and a blasphemous bloody ape. Temple stood up and, pushing past Cranley, addressed Glynn. That phrase you said now is from the New Testament, about suffer the children to come to me. Go to sleep again, Temple, said O'Keefe. Very well, then, Temple continued, still addressing Glynn. And if Jesus suffered the children to come, why does the church send them all to hell if they die unbaptized? Why is that? Were you baptized yourself, Temple? The consumptive student asked. But why are they sent to hell if Jesus said they were all to come? Temple said, his eyes searching Glynn's eyes. Glynn coughed and said gently, holding back with difficulty the nervous titter in his voice and moving his umbrella at every word. And as you remark, if it is thus, I ask emphatically, whence comes this thusness? Because the church is cruel like all old sinners, Temple said. 
Are you quite orthodox on that point, Temple? Dixon said suavely. St. Augustine says that about the unbaptized children going to hell, Temple answered, because he was a cruel old sinner too. I bow to you, Dixon said, but I had the impression that limbo existed for such cases. Don't argue with him, Dixon, Cranley said brutally. Don't talk to him or look at him. Lead him home with a sugon the way you lead a bleating goat. Limbo, Temple cried. That's a fine invention too, like hell. But with the unpleasantness left out, Dixon said. He turned smiling to the others and said, I think I'm voicing the opinions of all present in saying so much. You are, Glynn said in a firm tone. On that point Ireland is united. He struck the ferrule of his umbrella on the stone floor of the colonnade. Hell, Temple said, I can respect that invention of the grey spouse of Satan. Hell is Roman, like the walls of the Romans, strong and ugly. But what is limbo? Put him back into the perambulator, Cranley, O'Keefe called out. Cranley made a swift step towards Temple, halted, stamping his foot, crying as if to a fowl. Hoosh! Temple moved away nimbly. Do you know what limbo is? he cried. Do you know what we call a notion like that in Roscommon? Hoosh, blast you! Cranley cried, clapping his hands. Neither me arse nor me elbow, Temple cried out scornfully, and that's what I call limbo. Give us that stick here, Cranley said. He snatched the ash plant roughly from Stephen's hand and sprang down the steps. But Temple, hearing him move in pursuit, fled through the dusk like a wild creature, nimble and fleet-footed. Cranley's heavy boots were heard loudly charging across the quadrangle and then returning heavily, foiled and spurning the gravel at each step. His step was angry and with an angry abrupt gesture he thrust the stick back into Stephen's hand. Stephen felt that his anger had another cause but feigning patience touched his arm slightly and said quietly, Cranley, I told you I wanted to speak to you. Come away. Cranley looked at him for a few moments and asked, Now? Yes, now, Stephen said. We can't speak here. Come away. They crossed the quadrangle together without speaking. The bird call from Siegfried whistled softly, followed them from the steps of the porch. Cranley turned and Dixon, who had whistled, called out, Where are you fellas off to? What about that game, Cranley? They parleyed in shouts across the still air about a game of billiards to be played in the Adelphi Hotel. Stephen walked on alone and out into the quiet of Kildare Street. Opposite Maple's Hotel he stood to wait, patient again. The name of the hotel, a colourless polished wood and its colourless front, stung him like a glance of polite disdain. He stared angrily back at the softly lit drawing-room of the hotel in which he imagined the sleek lives of the patricians of Ireland housed in calm. They thought of army commissions and land agents. Peasants greeted them along the roads in the country. They knew the names of certain French dishes and gave orders to Jarvis in high-pitched provincial voices which pierced through their skin-tight accents. How could he hit their conscience or how cast his shadow over the imaginations of their daughters? before their squires begat upon them that they might breed a race less ignoble than their own. And under the deepening dusk he felt the thoughts and desires of the race to which he belonged, flitting like bats across the dark country lanes, under trees by the edges of streams and near the pool-mottled bogs. A woman had waited in the doorway as Davin had passed by at night and offering him a cup of milk had all but wooed him to her bed. 
for Davin had the mild eyes of one who could be secret. But him no woman's eyes had wooed. His arm was taken in a strong grip, and Cranley's voice said, Let us eat go. They walked on in silence. Then Cranley said, That blithering idiot Temple! I swear to Moses, do you know, that I'll be the death of that fellow one time. But his voice was no longer angry, and Stephen was wondering was he thinking of her greeting to him under the porch. They turned to the left and walked on as before. When they had gone on so for some time, Stephen said, Cranley, I had an unpleasant quarrel this evening. With your people? Cranley asked. With my mother. About religion? Yes, Stephen answered. After a pause, Cranley asked, What age is your mother? Not old, Stephen said. She wishes me to make my Easter duty. And will you? I will not, Stephen said. Why not? Cranley said. I will not serve, answered Stephen. That remark was made before, Cranley said calmly. It is made behind now, said Stephen hotly. Cranley pressed Stephen's arm, saying, Go easy, my dear man. You're an excitable bloody man, do you know. He laughed nervously as he spoke, and looking up into Stephen's face with moved and friendly eyes, said, Do you know that you are an excitable man? I dare say I am, said Stephen, laughing also. Their minds, lately estranged, seemed suddenly to have been drawn closer, one to the other. Do you believe in the Eucharist? Cranley asked. I do not, Stephen said. Do you disbelieve, then? I neither believe in it or disbelieve in it, Stephen answered. Many persons have doubts, even religious persons, yet they overcome them or put them aside, Cranley said. Are your doubts on that point too strong? I do not wish to overcome them, Stephen answered. Cranley, embarrassed for a moment, took another fig from his pocket and was about to eat it when Stephen said, Don't, please. You cannot discuss this question with your mouth full of chewed fig. Cranley examined the fig by the light of a lamp under which he halted, then smelt it with both nostrils, bit a tiny piece, spat it out, and threw the fig rudely into the gutter. Addressing it as it lay, he said, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Taking Stephen's arms, he went on again and said, Do you not fear that those words may be spoken to you on the day of judgment? What is offered to me on the other hand? Stephen asked. An eternity of bliss in the company of the dean of studies? Remember, Cranley said, that he would be glorified. Aye, Stephen said somewhat bitterly, bright, agile, impassable, and above all, subtle. It is a curious thing, do you know, Cranley said dispassionately, how your mind is supersaturated with the religion in which you say you disbelieve. Did you believe it when you were at school? I bet you did. I did, Stephen answered. And were you happier then? Cranley asked softly. Happier than you are now, for instance. Often happy, Stephen said, and often unhappy. I was someone else then. How someone else? What do you mean by that statement? I mean, said Stephen, that I was not myself as I am now, as I had to become. Not as you are now, not as you had to become, Cranley repeated. Let me ask you a question. Do you love your mother? Stephen shook his head slowly. I don't know what your words mean, he said simply. Have you never loved anyone? Cranley asked. Do you mean women? I'm not speaking of that, Cranley said in a colder tone. 
I ask you if you ever felt love towards any one or anything. Stephen walked on beside his friend, staring gloomily at the footpath. I tried to love God, he said at length. It seems now I failed. It is very difficult. I tried to unite my will with the will of God instant by instant. and that I did not always fail. I could perhaps do that, still. Cranley cut him short by asking, Has your mother had a happy life? How do I know? Stephen said. How many children had she? Nine or ten, Stephen answered. Some died. What was your father? Cranley interrupted himself for an instant and then said, I don't want to pry into your family affairs, but was your father what is called well-to-do? I mean, when you were growing up. Yes, Stephen said. What was he? Cranley asked after a pause. Stephen began to enumerate glibly his father's attributes. A medical student, an oarsman, a tenor, an amateur actor, a shouting politician, a small landlord, a small investor, a drinker, a good fellow, a storyteller, somebody's secretary, something in a distillery, a tax-gatherer, a bankrupt, and at present a praiser of his own past. Cranley laughed, tightening his grip on Stephen's arm, and said, The distillery is damn good. Is there anything else you want to know? Stephen asked. Are you in good circumstances at present? Do I look it? Stephen asked bluntly. So then, Cranley went on musingly, you were born in the lap of luxury. He used the phrase broadly and loudly as he often used technical expressions, as if he wished his hearer to understand that they were used by him without conviction. Your mother must have gone through a good deal of suffering, he said then. Would you not try to save her from suffering even more if, or would you? If I could, Stephen said, that would cost me very little. Then do so, Cranley said. Do as she wishes you to do. What is it for you? You disbelieve in it. It is a form, nothing else. And you will set her mind at rest. He ceased, and as Stephen did not reply, remained silent. Then, as if giving utterance to the process of his own thought, he said, Whatever else is unsure in this stinking dunghill of a world, a mother's love is not. Your mother brings you into the world, carries you first in her body. What do we know about what she feels? But whatever she feels, it at least must be real. It must be. What are our ideas, our ambitions? Play. Ideas. Why, that bloody bleeding goat Temple has ideas. McCann has ideas too. Every jackass going the roads thinks he has ideas. Stephen, who had been listening to the unspoken speech behind the words, said with assumed carelessness, Pascal, if I remember rightly, would not suffer his mother to kiss him as he feared the contact of her sex. Pascal was a pig, said Cranley. Aloysius Gonzaga, I think, was of the same mind, Stephen said. And he was another pig, then, said Cranley. The church calls him a saint, Stephen objected. I don't care a flaming damn what anyone calls him, Cranley said rudely and flatly. I call him a pig. Stephen, preparing the words neatly in his mind, continued. Jesus, too, seems to have treated his mother with scant courtesy in public, but Suarez, a Jesuit theologian and Spanish gentleman, has apologised for him. Did the idea ever occur to you, Cranley asked, that Jesus was not what he pretended to be? The first person to whom that idea occurred, Stephen answered, was Jesus himself. I mean, Cranley said, hardening in his speech, did the idea ever occur to you? that he was himself a conscious hypocrite, what he called the Jews of his time a whited sepulchre, or, to put it more plainly, that he was a blackguard. The idea never occurred to me, Stephen answered. 
But I am curious to know, are you trying to make a convert of me or a pervert of yourself? He turned towards his friend's face and saw there a raw smile which some force of will strove to make finely significant. Cranley asked suddenly in a plain, sensible tone, Tell me the truth. Were you at all shocked by what I said? Somewhat, Stephen said. And why were you shocked? Cranley pressed on in the same tone, if you feel sure that our religion is false and that Jesus was not the Son of God. I am not at all sure of it, Stephen said. He is more like a son of God than a son of Mary. And is that why you will not communicate? Cranley asked. Because you are not sure of that too? Because you feel that the host too may be the body and blood of the Son of God and not a wafer of bread? And because you fear that it may be? Yes, Stephen said quietly. I feel that and I also fear it. I see, Cranley said. Stephen, struck by his tone of closure, reopened the discussion at once by saying, I fear many things. Dogs, horses, firearms, the sea, thunderstorms, machinery, the country roads at night. But why do you fear a bit of bread? I imagine, Stephen said, that there is a malevolent reality behind those things I say I fear. Do you fear, then, Cranley asked, that the God of the Roman Catholics would strike you dead and damn you if you made a sacrilegious communion? The God of the Roman Catholics could do that now, Stephen said. I fear more than that the chemical action which would be set up in my soul by a false homage to a symbol behind which are massed twenty centuries of authority and veneration. Would you, Cranley asked, in extreme danger, commit that particular sacrilege, for instance, if you lived in the penal days? I cannot answer for the past, Stephen replied. Possibly not. Then, said Cranley, you do not intend to become a Protestant. I said that I had lost the faith, Stephen answered but not that I had lost self-respect. What kind of liberation would that be, to forsake an absurdity which is logical and coherent, and to embrace one which is illogical and incoherent? They had walked on towards the township of Pembroke, and now, as they went on slowly along the avenues, the trees and the scattered lights in the villas soothed their minds. The air of wealth and repose diffused about them seemed to comfort their neediness. Behind a hedge of laurel, a light glimmered in the window of a kitchen, and the voice of a servant was heard singing as she sharpened knives. She sang in short broken bars, Rosie O'Grady. Cranley stopped to listen, saying, Mulier cantat. The soft beauty of the Latin word touched with an enchanting touch the dark of the evening, with a touch fainter and more persuading than the touch of music or of a woman's hand. The strife of their minds was quelled, the figure of a woman as she appears in the liturgy of the church passed silently through the darkness. A white-robed figure, small and slender as a boy, and with a falling girdle. Her voice, frail and high as a boy's, the first words of a woman which pierced the gloom and clamour of the first chanting of the Passion. Et tu cum Jesu Galileo eras. And all hearts were touched and turned to her voice, shining like a young star shining clearer as the voice intoned the proparoxytone, and more faintly as the cadence died. The singing ceased. They went on together, Cranley repeating in strongly stressed rhythm the end of the refrain. And when we are married, oh, how happy we'll be, for I love sweet Rosie O'Grady, and Rosie O'Grady loves me. There's real poetry for you, he said. There's real love. He glanced sideways at Stephen with a strange smile and said, 
Do you consider that poetry? Or do you know what the words mean? I want to see Rosie first, said Stephen. She's easy to find, Cranley said. His hat had come down on his forehead. He shoved it back, and in the shadow of the trees Stephen saw his pale face, framed by the dark, and his large, dark eyes. Yes. His face was handsome, and his body was strong and hard. He had spoken of a mother's love. He felt then the sufferings of women, the weaknesses of their bodies and souls, and would shield them with a strong and resolute arm and bow his mind to them. Away, then. It is time to go. A voice spoke softly to Stephen's lonely heart, bidding him go and telling him that his friendship was coming to an end. Yes, he would go. He could not strive against another. He knew his part. Probably I shall go away, he said. Where? Cranley asked. Where I can, Stephen said. Yes, Cranley said. It might be difficult for you to live here now. But is it that makes you go? I have to go, Stephen answered. Because, Cranley continued, you need not look upon yourself as driven away if you do not wish to go, or as a heretic or an outlaw. There are many good believers who think as you do. Would that surprise you? The church is not the stone building, nor even the clergy and their dogmas. It is the whole mass of those born into it. I don't know what you wish to do in life. Is it what you told me the night we were standing outside Harcourt Street Station? Yes, Stephen said, smiling in spite of himself at Cranley's way of remembering thoughts in connection with places. The night you spent half an hour wrangling with Doherty about the shortest way from Sally Gap to Laris. Pothead, Cranley said with calm contempt. What does he know about the way from Sally Gap to Laris? Or what does he know about anything for that matter? And the big slobber and wash and pot head of him. He broke into a loud, long laugh. Well, Stephen said, do you remember the rest? What you said, is it? Cranley asked. Yes, I remember it. To discover the mode of life or of art whereby your spirit could express itself in unfettered freedom. Stephen raised his hat in acknowledgement. Freedom, Cranley repeated. But you are not free enough yet to commit a sacrilege. Tell me, would you rob? I would beg first, Stephen said. And if you got nothing, would you rob? You wish me to say, Stephen answered, that the rights of property are provisional, and that in certain circumstances it is not unlawful to rob. Everyone would act in that belief. So I will not make you that answer. Apply to the Jesuit theologian, Juan Mariana de Talavera, who will also explain to you in what circumstances you may lawfully kill your king and whether you had better hand him his poison in a goblet or smear it for him upon his robe or his saddle-bow. Ask me rather would I suffer others to rob me, or if they did, would I call down upon them what I believe is called the chastisement of the secular arm. And would you? I think, Stephen said, it would pay me as much to do so as to be robbed. I see, Cranley said. He produced his match and began to clean the crevice between two teeth. Then he said carelessly, Tell me, for example, would you deflower a virgin? Excuse me, Stephen said politely. Is that not the ambition of most young gentlemen? What then is your point of view? Cranley asked. His last phrase, sour-smelling as the smoke of charcoal and disheartening, excited Stephen's brain, over which its fumes seemed to brood. Look here, Cranley, he said. You have asked me what I would do and what I would not do. I will tell you what I will do and what I will not do. I will not serve that in which I no longer believe, whether it call itself my home, my fatherland, or my church. 
and I would try to express myself in some mode of life or art as freely as I can and as wholly as I can, using for my defence the only arms I allow myself to use, silence, exile and cunning. Cranley seized his arm and steered him round so as to lead him back towards Leeson Park. He laughed almost slyly and pressed Stephen's arm with an elder's affection. Cunning indeed, he said. Is it you, you poor poet, you? And you made me confess to you, Stephen said, thrilled by his touch, as I have confessed to you so many other things, have I not? Yes, my child, Cranley said, still gaily. You made me confess the fears that I have, but I will tell you also what I do not fear. I do not fear to be alone or to be spurned for another or to leave whatever I have to leave. And I am not afraid to make a mistake, even a great mistake, a lifelong mistake, and perhaps as long as eternity too. Cranley, now grave again, slowed his pace and said, Alone, quite alone. Have you no fear of that? And do you know what that word means? Not only to be separate from all others, but to have not even one friend. I will take the risk, said Stephen. And not to have any one person, Cranley said, who would be more than a friend, more even than the noblest and truest friend a man ever had. His words seemed to have struck some deep chord in his own nature. Had he spoken of himself, of himself as he was or wished to be? Stephen watched his face for some moments in silence. A cold sadness was there. He had spoken of himself, of his own loneliness, which he feared. Of whom are you speaking? Stephen asked at length. Cranley did not answer. March 20th. Long talk with Cranley on the subject of my revolt. He had his grand manner on, I supple and suave. Attacked me on the score of love for one's mother. Tried to imagine his mother. Cannot. Told me once, in a moment of thoughtlessness, his father was sixty-one when he was born. Can see him. Strong farmer type. Pepper and salt suit. Square feet, unkempt grizzled beard. Probably attends coursing matches. Pays his dues regularly, but not plentifully, to Father Dwyer of Laris. Sometimes talks to girls after nightfall. But his mother, very young or very old, hardly the first. If so, Cranley would not have spoken as he did. Old then, probably, and neglected. Hence Cranley's despair of soul, the child of exhausted loins. March 21st, morning. Thought this in bed last night, but was too lazy and free to add to it. Free, yes. The exhausted loins are those of Elizabeth and Zachary. Then he is the precursor. Item. He eats chiefly belly bacon and dried figs, read locusts and wild honey. Also, when thinking of him, saw always a stern severed head or death mask, as if outlined on a grey curtain or Veronica. Decolation they call it in the fold. Puzzled for the moment by St. John at the Latin gate. What do I see? A decollated precursor trying to pick the lock. March 21st, night. Free. Soul free and fancy free. Let the dead bury the dead. Aye, and let the dead marry the dead. March 22nd. In company with Lynch followed a sizable hospital nurse. Lynch's idea. Dislike it. Two lean hungry greyhounds walking after a heifer. March 23rd. Have not seen her since that night. Unwell. Sits at the fire, perhaps, with Mamma's shawl on her shoulders, but not peevish. A nice bowl of gruel, won't you now? 
March 24th. Began with a discussion with my mother. Subject, Blessed Virgin Mary. Handicapped by my sex and youth. To escape held-up relations between Jesus and Papa, against those between Mary and her son. Said religion was not a lying-in hospital. Mother indulgent. Said I have a queer mind and have read too much. Not true. Have read little and understood less. Then she said I would come back to faith because I had a restless mind. This means to leave the church by the back door of sin and to re-enter through the skylight of repentance. Cannot repent. Told her so and asked for sixpence. Got threepence. Then went to college. Other wrangled with little round-head rogue's eye Getsy. This time about Bruno the Nolan. Began in Italian and ended in pidgin English. He said Bruno was a terrible heretic. I said he was terribly burned. He agreed to this with some sorrow. Then gave me recipe for what he calls risotto alla bergamasca. When he pronounces a soft O, he protrudes his full carnal lips as if he kissed the vowel. Has he? And could he repent? Yes, he could, and cried two round rogue's tears, one from each eye. Crossing Stevens, that is, my green, remembered that his countrymen and not mine had invented what Cranley the other night called our religion. A quartet of them, soldiers of the 97th Infantry Regiment, sat at the foot of the cross and tossed up dice for the overcoat of the crucified. Went to library. Tried to read three reviews. Useless. She is not out yet. Am I alarmed? About what? That she will never be out again. Blake wrote, I wonder if William Bond will die, for assuredly he is very ill. Alas, poor William. I was once at a diorama in Rotunda. At the end were pictures of big knobs, among them William Ewart Gladstone, just then dead. Orchestra played, O oh, Willie, we have missed you. Race of clodhoppers. March 25th, morning. A troubled night of dreams. Want to get them off my chest. A long curving gallery. From the floor ascend pillars of dark vapours. It is peopled by the images of fabulous kings set in stone. Their hands are folded upon their knees in token of weariness, and their eyes are darkened, for the errors of men go up before them forever as dark vapours. Strange figures advance as from a cave. They are not as tall as men. One does not seem to stand quite apart from another. Their faces are phosphorescent, with darker streaks. They peer at me and their eyes seem to ask me something. They do not speak. March 30th. This evening Cranley was in the porch of the library, proposing a problem to Dixon and her brother. A mother let her child fall into the Nile, still harping on the mother. A crocodile seized the child. Mother asked it back. Crocodile said all right if she told him what he was going to do with the child, eat it or not eat it. This mentality, Lepidus would say, is indeed bred out of your mud by the operation of your son. And mine? Is it not too? Then into Nile mud with it. April 1st. Disapprove of this last phrase. April 2nd. Saw her drinking tea and eating cakes in Johnston's Mooney and O'Brien's. Rather, lynx-eyed Lynch saw her as we passed. He tells me Cranley was invited there by brother. Did he bring his crocodile? Is he the shining light now? Well, I discovered him. I protest I did. Shining quietly behind a bushel of Wicklow bran. April 3rd. Met Davin at the cigar shop opposite Findlater's church. He was in a black sweater and had a hurley stick. 
asked me was it true I was going away and why. Told him the shortest way to Tara was via Hollyhead. Just then my father came up. Introduction. Father polite and observant. Asked Davin if he might offer him some refreshment. Davin could not. He was going to a meeting. When we came away, father told me he had a good honest eye. Asked me why I did not join a rowing club. I pretended to think it over. Told me then how he broke Pennyfeather's heart. Wants me to read law. Says I was cut out for that. More mud. More crocodiles. April 5th. Wild spring, scudding clouds, oh life. Dark stream of swirling bog water on which apple trees have cast down their delicate flowers. Eyes of girls among the leaves. Girls demure and romping. All fair or auburn. No dark ones. They blush better. Hoopla. April 6th. Certainly she remembers the past. Lynch says all women do. Then she remembers the time of her childhood, and mine, if I was ever a child. The past is consumed in the present, and the present is living only because it brings forth the future. Statues of women, if Lynch be right, should always be fully draped, one hand of the woman feeling regretfully her own hinder parts. April 6th, later. Michael Rabartes remembers forgotten beauty, and when his arms wrap her round, he presses in his arms the loveliness which has long faded from the world. Not this, not at all. I desire to press in my arms the loveliness which has not yet come into the world. April 10th, faintly, under the heavy night, through the silence of the city which has turned from dreams to dreamless sleep, as a weary lover whom no caresses move, the sound of hoofs upon the road. Not so faintly now as they come near the bridge, and in a moment, as they pass the darkened windows, the silence is cloven by alarm as by an arrow. They are heard now far away, hoofs that shine amid the heavy night as gems, hurrying beyond the sleeping fields to what journey's end, what heart, bearing what tidings. April 11th. Read what I wrote last night. Vague words for a vague emotion. Would she like it? I think so. Then I should have to like it also. April 13th. That tundish has been on my mind for a long time. Looked it up and find it English and good old blunt English too. Damn the dean of studies and his funnel. What did he come here for? To teach us his own language or to learn it from us? Damn him one way or the other. April 14th. John Alphonsus Mulrennan has just returned from the west of Ireland. European and Asiatic papers please copy. He told us he met an old man there in a mountain cabin. Old man had red eyes and short pipe. Old man spoke Irish. Mulrennan spoke Irish. Then old man and Mulrennan spoke English. Mulrennan spoke to him about universe and stars. Old man sat, listened, smoked, spat, then said, Ha! There must be terrible queer creatures at the latter end of the world. I fear him. I fear his red-rimmed horny eyes. It is with him I must struggle all through this night till day come till he or I lie dead, gripping him by the sinewy throat till... till what? Till he yield to me? No. I mean no harm. April 15th. Met her today point-blank in Grafton Street. The crowd brought us together. We both stopped. She asked me why I never came. She said she had heard all sorts of stories about me. This was only to gain time. Asked me was I writing poems. About whom, I asked her. This confused her more, and I felt sorry and mean. 
turned off that valve at once and opened the spiritual heroic refrigerating apparatus invented and patented in all countries by Dante Alighieri. Talked rapidly of myself and my plans. In the midst of it, unluckily, I made a sudden gesture of a revolutionary nature. I must have looked like a fellow throwing a handful of peas into the air. People began to look at us. She shook hands a moment after and, in going away, said she hoped I would do what I said. Now I call that friendly, don't you? Yes, I liked her today. A little or much, don't know. I liked her and it seems a new feeling to me. Then in that case, all the rest, all that I thought I thought and all that I felt I felt, all the rest before now, in fact. Or give it up, old chap. Sleep it off. April 16th. Away. Away. The spell of arms and voices. The white arms of roads, their promise of close embraces, and the black arms of tall ships that stand against the moon, their tale of distant nations. They are held out to say, We are alone, come. And the voices say with them, We are your kinsmen. And the air is thick with their company as they call to me, their kinsman, making ready to go, shaking the wings of their exultant and terrible youth. April 26th Mother is putting my new second-hand clothes in order. She prays now, she says, that I may learn in my own life and away from home and friends what the heart is and what it feels. Amen. So be it. Welcome, O life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. April 27th Old Father Old artificer, stand me now and ever in good stead. Dublin, 1904. Trieste, 1914. End of chapter 5, part 3. That's the end of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Read by Tighe Hines.